Welcome, everyone. So glad to have you here at University Synagogue. For those who I haven't met, I'm Arnie Rockless. I'm the rabbi of University Synagogue. Each year, the UCI founding law school dean and member of University Synagogue, Erwin Chemerinsky, speaks on this topic. CSP arranges it, we co-sponsor it, and it's a great honor. Everyone here who knows Erwin Chemerinsky knows what a superb human being he is, a mensch, someone who cares deeply about his Jewish identity and who cares deeply about justice. One thing I'd like to recommend to everyone here, if you haven't read it yet, his book on the Supreme Court. He has a number of books. If you've ever tried to read his constitutional law book, which every constitutional law student reads, my son did when he went to law school, my son understood it. I would recommend the Supreme Court book. But the Supreme Court book tells you something that's at the heart of today's talk, and that is there is no such thing as a group of people immune from partisanship and political persuasion. Everything is in a context. And yet, the Supreme Court in every democratic society is the place where justice has the potential to reside. Politics are chaotic. Look at Europe. Look at the 31,000 votes in Austria the other day that separated someone who was part of a neo-Nazi party from winning the presidency. Think about what's going on in Hungary, Poland, Czechoslovakia. Think about the deterioration of the body politic in our beloved Israel. And now think about it here. This is a serious time. You know, people like to laugh at elections. They like to laugh at the foibles of politicians. We can't laugh anymore. There is nothing funny about this election. And yet we hope that a Supreme Court will be able, whether it's four to four or whether it will soon be five to four, we hope that a Supreme Court will be able to be as free from political influence as possible, knowing that it cannot be purely free of that. So when we listen to Erwin Chemerinsky today, we're really listening for hope. And we're also listening for being part of the, those people in this country, knowing that political and partisan influence does make a difference to make our voices be heard. That is our obligation. On our bima, all the time, you see an empty chair draped in a talit. That's our Kiseishel Eliyahu, our Elijah's chair. Reminds us there is a lot of work to redeem the world, to make a more just society, to do the work of tikkun olam. So what we learn today is not for our entertainment, and it is not just for our edification. It's a call to make a difference. Now, You've received a number of things as you came in. The, one of them is the University Synagogue Distinguished Speaker Series and upcoming events. Please take that home with you. You're invited to everything we have here at the synagogue. You can go on our website. There is one thing missing from here because it was, came in a little bit after this was printed. 
uh, on July 18th here at University Synagogue. CSP and University Synagogue are sponsoring a, tar a talk um, on um, the Lost Tribes, what happened to them. We thank CSP once again for that lunch and sponsorship. You'll hear more about it through the University Synagogue mailings and through CSP. It's a delight to have Erwin here, and it is now my great pleasure to introduce the founder of CSP, but more than the founder, the guiding light of CSP, the person who is responsible for sophisticated Jewish educational experiences in Orange County more than any single individual, and he had no organization behind him when he began. He created the organization, and we are incredibly grateful to him. Ari Katz. For those of you I don't know, uh, welcome to uh, a CSP event. I wanted to thank Rabbi Rochlis and University Synagogue for hosting. This, I believe, is our fourth or fifth year. I can't remember. The dean probably remembers better. But uh, our goal has been each year, um, based on a program idea that Fran Gustin had, to have a uh, review of the most important cases in front of the Supreme Court each year at about the time the Supreme Court is reviewing, is deciding them. We are going in, uh, CSP stands for Community Scholar Program, and for those of you who don't know who we are, this is our going into our 16th year of bringing the best uh, speakers in the world to Orange County. If this is your first program, you've missed about 499, but don't worry, we tend to record many of our programs. We are recording tonight, Grendel is in the back of the room, and today's program, for example, will be up at our OCCSP podcast. I wanted to thank uh, our check-in team for today for helping to manage the crowd, and I wanted to urge you all to please turn off your cell phones so we can enjoy the program uninterrupted. Uh, Rabbi Rothless mentioned some great programs coming up. We had handouts as you came in of things going on in our community. On June 5th, there are two programs. Tarbufa Torah is, is uh, doing a program called Tikkun for the Troops. They're assembling um, care packages for U.S. troops who are serving overseas. Hopefully you can assist them either by actually putting the packages together or donating supplies. Also, Yom Yerushalayim on June 5th, uh, Congregation of Israel is hosting a community-wide celebration uh, featuring the, the Los Angeles Zimriya Chorale. Two specific CSP things I wanted to focus on. One is um, we are very happy to have one of the first female Orthodox rabbis in the world coming to Orange County. Her name is Rachi Berkovitz. Uh, not only did she go to my high school, she was a few years behind me at Maimonides, and everyone said, if there ever is going to be a, a female Orthodox rabbi, it will be Rachi, and it is. So she'll be teaching in Orange County June 15th. You're all invited. I hope you will join. She's a wonderful teacher. She's a star uh, person on the faculty at Pardes Institute, if you've heard of that, in Jerusalem. And last summer, New York Times and many other um, periodicals covered her becoming an Orthodox female rabbi. As the rabbi mentioned, um, we have our 14th annual Summer Scholar Series. Our scholar uh, is uh, Mark Michael Epstein. Many of you heard him a few years ago. He was our one-month scholar. We bring him back because of his erudition and entertainment. And uh, he'll be doing four programs. The final program closes here at a lunch event um, uh, on July 18th. Again, that's all in the materials that you have. Finally, um, I believe, Dean Chemerinsky, you're, you're coming up to your, is it ninth book or eighth book? Which is the newest one? Ninth? Ninth book entitled Closing the Courthouse Door is due in the bookstores in January. CSP is very happy to be um, sponsoring a book event uh, regarding the new book. So please mark down February 9th, 2017. More details will be coming. Okay. 
For those of you who don't know about our speaker, um, Dean Erwin Chemerinsky is the founding dean and distinguished professor of law and Raymond uh, Pryke Professor of First Amendment Law at the University of California, Irvine School of Law. He also has a joint appointment in political science. Uh, UCI, opened its door, UCI Law School opened its doors in August 2009 when it became the first public law school in California in more than 40 years. Uh, it has quickly gone up in the rankings due uh, in, in major part because of the decisions and uh, uh, governance and uh, uh, of Dean Chemerinsky and is now in the top 30 law schools in the country. Its faculty is ranked number six in the United States. It's ranked third in the placement of federal clerkships behind only Yale and Stanford and second in the United States for public interest jobs. So those of you who are looking to go to law school like the students from Valley High, you can stay right here after you all go to high, uh, college or those of you looking, thinking about uh, law as a second career, I'm sure the dean will take you. Uh, you should know, though, those who were in the first class, who got accepted the first class, got a free ride for three years. I am told that doesn't happen anymore, but if you're willing to pay, the dean will take you, assuming you can get through the rigorous LSAT and GPA requirements. Previously, the dean taught at Duke Law School for four years, during which he won the Duke University Scholar Teacher of the Year Award in 2006. Before that, he taught for 21 years at the University of Southern California School of Law, and served for four years as director of the Center for Communications, Law, and Policy. Uh, Dean Chemerinsky has also taught at UCLA Law School and DePaul University College of Law. His areas of expertise are constitutional law, federal practice, civil rights, and civil liberties, and appellate litigation. He's the author of now nine books. Uh, the, the most recent book is uh, The Case Against the Supreme Court, which was published in 2014. As I mentioned, the new book, Closing the Courthouse Door, comes out in January. He frequently argues cases before the nation's highest courts and also serves as a commentator on legal issues for national and local media. Um, he holds a law degree from Harvard Law School and a bachelor's degree from Northwestern University. The topic for today, uh, oh gosh, is 60-minute review of the court's major cases, 2016, affirmative action, reproductive freedom, and immigration. Please join me in welcoming Dean Erwin Chemerinsky. Thank you. Rabbi Rockless, Ari, thank you so much for the incredibly kind introductions. Thank you for the warm welcome. Thank you for coming today. It's truly my honor and privilege to be here this afternoon. Everything changed in the Supreme Court on Saturday, February 13th, when Justice Scalia passed away. I thought I would take a few minutes and talk about Justice Scalia's legacy. Then I want to discuss what his death means for this year in the Supreme Court especially want to focus on the advertised areas of abortion, affirmative action, immigration, I think are the most important cases to come down in the next month. And then I want to talk about the Supreme Court in the longer term. Obviously, it's impossible to assess Justice Scalia's legacy at this moment in time. To a large extent, his legacy is going to be determined by who replaces him and who fills other vacancies on the Supreme Court. We can certainly assess what his impact has been in three decades as a justice. I can identify areas where he was successful, areas where he was somewhat successful, and areas where he failed. One of the areas where he succeeded was with regard to the Second Amendment. From the time the Second Amendment was ratified in 1791 until June of 2008, the Supreme Court 
always said that it protected a right to have guns just for the purpose of militia service. That seems to be what the Second Amendment says. It says a well-regulated militia being necessary to free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. But Justice Scalia had a different view. He believed that the key words of the Second Amendment were at the end where it says, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And in June 2008, for the first time in history, the Supreme Court declared unconstitutional a law regulating guns. The case was District of Columbia versus Heller. It involved a 32-year-old ordinance that prohibited ownership or possession of handguns in the District of Columbia. The Supreme Court, in a five to four decision, declared the law unconstitutional. Justice Antonin Scalia wrote for the court and said, the Second Amendment protects the right of people to have guns, at least in their homes, for the sake of security. I can identify areas where Justice Scalia was somewhat successful. Abortion rights. From the time Antonin Scalia came on the court, he was a fierce opponent of any protection of abortion rights. He strongly urged the overruling of Roe versus Wade. He never got five votes to overrule Roe versus Wade. But let there be no doubt, he helped push the court in a more conservative direction. The court, in recent years, has repeatedly upheld federal and state laws regulating abortion. Most recently, in 2007, in Gonzalez versus Carhart, the Supreme Court upheld the Federal Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act, federal law that prohibited a particular form of abortion that's often the safest for some women at particular stages of pregnancy. And then there's the areas where Justice Scalia failed. One place he clearly failed was with regard to gay and lesbian rights. Antonin Scalia dissented in every Supreme Court case in history that advanced rights for gays and lesbians. Perhaps most notably, last June 26th, he dissented in Oberfell versus Hodges, where the Supreme Court declared unconstitutional laws in Kentucky, Michigan, Ohio, and Tennessee that prohibited same-sex marriage. Another way in which Justice Scalia failed was getting a majority of the justices to adopt his view of constitutional interpretation. Justice Scalia described his view as originalism. He said that he believed that the meaning of a constitutional provision was fixed when it was adopted, that it could be changed only through a constitutional amendment. So for him, the First Amendment means the same thing as was passed in 1791. The 14th Amendment, say the guarantee of equal protection, means the same thing was adopted in 1868. But never did a majority of the court accept that philosophy. It would seem at times absurd to be governed by the views from an agrarian slave society. The same Congress that ratified the 14th Amendment also voted to segregate the District of Columbia public schools. That would seemingly mean that Brown versus Board of Education was wrongly decided. In fact, in the marriage equality case that I mentioned, Oberfell versus Hodges last June, 
Justice Kennedy's majority opinion expressly embraced the view that the Constitution is a living document that gains meaning over time. There's one area where I very much hope that Justice Scalia will be a failure, and I say this in a non-ideological way, and that's the sarcastic, caustic rhetoric that he brought to judicial opinions. Never in all of American history is there a justice who wrote in the sarcastic, caustic tones of Antonin Scalia. In the marriage equality case that I mentioned, Justice Scalia in dissent refers to Justice Kennedy's majority opinion as, quote, pompous and egotistical. In footnote 22, he refers to Justice Kennedy's majority opinion as being, quote, like the aphorisms in a fortune cookie. In that same footnote, he says, if he ever joined a majority opinion with language like that in Justice Kennedy's, he wouldn't feel comfortable leaving his house without a bag over his head. Such language has no place in judicial opinions. It doesn't add to recent discourse. It sends such a terrible message to law students, to lawyers, about how to write and talk to one another. Well, these are a few words on Justice Scalia's legacy. What does his death mean for this year in the Supreme Court? The key to understanding this is to know that in order for a justice to participate in a decision, he or she must be on the bench the day the case is decided. A couple of days after Justice Scalia's death, I was driving, and I heard a commentator on the radio say that Justice Scalia's vote would count so long as it was cast before he passed away. I almost hit the car that was in front of me. That's just not so. Well, it means, of course, that there's a real chance of a significant number of 4-4 decisions this term. To put this in some statistical perspective, last year the Supreme Court decided 66 cases after brief funeral argument. 19 of them were 5-4 decisions. If you look at the past decade on average, there have been 10 and 5-4 cases a year where Justice Scalia is in the majority. So what happens if the court split four to four? The justices have three choices. One possibility is simply to affirm whatever the lower court decided, and there's no Supreme Court opinion or decision. The technical phrase in the law is that the lower court opinion is affirmed by an evenly divided court without any Supreme Court opinion. Whatever the lower court did, the Supreme Court granted review upon, stands. There's no Supreme Court precedent. Of course, the justice could take the issue up again in the future. Since February 13th, there have been three instances where the court has split four to four. They've just then affirmed the lower court, no Supreme Court decision. One was a case called Hawkins versus Bank of Raymore about a federal statute, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. One was Franchise Tax Board versus Hyatt, about whether a state can be sued in another state's courts. Here is about whether the California Franchise Tax Board could be sued in Nevada state courts. In the other case where the court split four to four, had the possibility of being one of the most important cases on the docket. There's a case called 
Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association, it had the possibility of significantly changing the political life here in California. What's involved here is in 1977, in a Bood versus Detroit Board of Education, the Supreme Court reaffirmed that no one can be forced to join a public employees union. But the court said that non-union members can be forced to pay the share of the union dues that go to support the collective bargaining activities of the union. The Supreme Court explained that non-union members benefit from collective bargaining. They benefit in their wages, their hours, their working conditions. The court said non-union members shouldn't be able to be free riders. Since they benefit, they should have to pay. But the court said non-union members cannot be forced to pay the share of the union dues that go to support the political activities of the union. The court said it would be a violation of the First Amendment, impermissible compelled speech, to force them to support political activities they disagree with. That's been the law for 40 years. It's the law here in California that those who are public employees can be forced to pay the share of the dues that go to support collective bargaining. In two recent cases, Knox versus SCIU, most recently in 2014, in Harris v. Quinn, the five conservative just on the court sharply criticized Abood. In Harris versus Quinn, Justice Alito's majority opinion referred to it as an anomaly in First Amendment jurisprudence. These conservative justices clearly signaled a willingness to reconsider and likely to overrule Abood. Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association was filed in federal district court here in Orange County in Santa Ana to be the vehicle for the Supreme Court to overrule Abood. Rebecca Friedrichs is a middle school teacher at a public charter school here in Orange County. She objected to having to pay the share of the dues that went to support collective bargaining. So she was the plaintiff in the lawsuit asking the court to overrule Abood. Her lawyers went before the federal district court judge, Josephine Staten in Santa Ana, and asked her to overrule the Supreme Court's decision of Abood. She said, I'm a lowly federal trial court judge. I can't overrule the Supreme Court. They said, that's right. Just enter judgment against us so we can get to the higher court. She did that. Then Rebecca Friedrich's lawyers went to the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit and said, overrule the Supreme Court's decision of Abood. They said, we can't do that. The lawyer said, that's fine. Just rule against us so we can get to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court granted review last June 30th. It's an unusual case because it came to the Supreme Court with no record. It was just a vehicle for overruling Abood. The case was argued on Monday, January 11th. I rarely read a transcript of an oral argument that was clearer as to what the result was going to be. Not one of the five justices then on the bench left doubt in a single question or comment how he was going to vote. I can only imagine how the lawyers on both sides felt on Saturday, February 13th, when they heard of Justice Scalia's death. For lawyers for Rebecca Friedrichs and the National Right to Work Committee, this was a sure victory being snatched away. For the lawyers for the unions, I can tell you, it was a huge sigh of relief. 
Had the Supreme Court overruled Abood, mean much less revenue for unions, less members for unions, much less political influence here in California and other states. Quite predictably, the Supreme Court announced it was split four to four. The Ninth Circuit decision was affirmed by an evenly divided court. Abood stands. If a Democrat, Merrick Garland or someone else, is confirmed to replace Antonin Scalia, I think Abood will survive. If a Republican replaces Justice Scalia, then its overruling is just delayed. So that's one option available to the justices. Split four to four, affirm the lower court. But that's particularly a problem when the lower courts are divided on a question of federal or constitutional law. If the lower courts are split and the Supreme Court doesn't resolve the issue, then the same federal statute or even the same constitutional provision has varying meanings in different parts of the country. So there's a second option available to the justices then. Look for a compromise. Find some narrow ground that a majority can agree upon. And we saw that a week ago yesterday in one of the high-profile cases of the term. It's a case called Zubik versus Burwell and involves the so-called contraceptive mandate under the Affordable Care Act. One provision of the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act, what's commonly referred to as Obamacare, was a requirement that the Department of Health and Human Services promulgate regulations requiring that employer-provided insurance include well care coverage for women. We all know that traditionally, health insurance would provide benefits only when someone was ill. Congress wanted to make sure that employer-provided insurance also had preventative health care coverage. Health and Human Services promulgated detailed regulations. One part of them deals with contraceptive coverage. And there's three aspects to this regulation. One says if it's a religious institution that opposes contraception, like the Catholic Church, it does not have to provide contraceptive coverage to its women employees. Another aspect says if it's a for-profit company that employs more than 50 people and provides health insurance, it has to provide coverage for the 20 types of contraceptives for women that are approved by the Food and Drug Administration. You might remember two years ago, in June of 2014, in Burwell versus Hobby Lobby, the Supreme Court said that this violates a federal statute, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, as applied to family-held businesses whose owners oppose contraception on religious grounds. It's the third aspect of the contraceptive mandate that's before the court this year in Zubik versus Burwell. This applies to not-for-profit institutions that are affiliated with religions that oppose contraception. Think of a Catholic university, or as was much discussed at oral argument, think of Little Sisters of the Poor. The regulation here says that these institutions can get out of providing contraceptive coverage if they file a statement with their insurance provider or the federal government. They just have to attest that they're affiliated with a religion that opposes contraception. Then, at absolutely no cost to that employer, the insurance provider of the federal government will provide contraceptive coverage to the women employees. 
all over the country, lawsuits were filed arguing that this violates the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The religious institution said, if they file that piece of paper with the insurance provider of the federal government, it triggers them providing contraceptive coverage. They said, this makes us complicit. The complicity is a substantial burdening of our religion. Seven federal courts of appeals rejected that argument. They said, there's no cost to you whatsoever. It's just somebody else, the insurance provider, the federal government are providing contraceptive coverage. One federal court of appeals found that the regulation violated the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The Supreme Court granted review. It was clear from the oral argument that the justices were split four to four. Soon after oral argument, the justices did something that I think is unprecedented in American history. The justices issued an order where they proposed their own compromise and asked for the parties to brief it. They said, what if the woman employee would file her claim for contraceptive coverage directly with the insurance provider of the federal government so the not-for-profit would never get involved at all? The court asked for briefs on April 12th and reply briefs on April 20th. The religious institutions all filed a brief saying, fine with us. The United States government filed a brief saying, this might work, but we don't think so. They said, for instance, what if the not-for-profit is self-insuring? How would it operate then? A week ago yesterday, the Supreme Court, in a two-and-a-half-page opinion, sent the cases back to the lower courts. The Supreme Court says, we have a compromise. Both sides say it might work. We'll let them work out a settlement between themselves. And that's where it is, unresolved by the Supreme Court, back in the lower courts. What happens now? Well, maybe the Obama administration will adopt a rule just like the Supreme Court suggested in the compromise. I doubt it. The Obama administration won in seven of eight federal courts of appeals. Why should they give in now? Also, the Obama administration has filed a brief saying they don't think the compromise will work. Besides, even if they adopt such a rule, what's to say the plaintiffs will accept it? I think what the Supreme Court did was just send the case back, hoping there'll be a settlement, but if not, it'll come back to the Supreme Court when there's a ninth justice. So one option when the justice split is affirm the lower court by an evenly divided court. Another is to find a compromise. There is a third alternative. The justices could put the case over for new briefing and new argument next year. Tradition is that the justices decide a case in the term in which it's argued. We are now in October term 2015. We expect that all the cases that have been argued will be decided by the end of June. But sometimes, including in some very high-profile cases, the justices have put the matter over to the next year. Example, Brown versus Board of Education. It was originally argued in the Supreme Court in October term 1952, but the justices could come to no consensus. So they asked for new briefing and new argument the next year, October term 1953. In the summer between those two terms, the summer of 1953, the Chief Justice Fred Vinson died of a heart attack. President Dwight Eisenhower named California Governor Earl Warren to be the new Chief Justice. 
In fact, it was a recess appointment. Earl Warren presided over the oral arguments in Brown before he was confirmed by the United States Senate. The court then decided Brown on May 17, 1954, or exactly 62 years ago, a week ago today. Another instance, Roe versus Wade. It was originally argued to the Supreme Court in October term 1971, but there were only seven justices on the bench that year. Justices Black and Harlan had not yet been replaced by Justices Powell and Rehnquist. The seven just decided they didn't want to resolve such a controversial issue without a full complement on the bench. So they put the case over for re-argument in October term 1972. Roe versus Wade was decided in January 1973. But if the justices want to do this, they have to face a practical question. How much more likely is it that there'll be a ninth justice on the bench this next year than this year? How likely is it that Merrick Garland will ever be confirmed for a seat on the Supreme Court? Here I have to pause for a moment of disclosure. I've known Merrick Garland since we were competitor high school debaters in the Chicago area in the late 1960s. In fact, he was a year ahead of me in law school. The day that President Obama nominated him, my oldest son called and said, you've known him a long time, what do you think? And I said, I think Merrick is a brilliant man, truly a decent human being. And I said, think of it this way. He's a Jewish man in his early 60s who grew up in Chicago, had Eastern European grandparents, he was a high school debater, and he went to Harvard Law School. What's not to like about that? <laughs> it's clear that the Senate Judiciary Committee will not be holding hearings on Merrick Garland before the November election. It's clear that the United States Senate will not be taking a vote on Merrick Garland before the November election. In fact, just hours after Justice Scalia's death, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said there will be no vote before the November election. My own prediction is that if a Democrat wins the White House in November, Judge Garland will be confirmed in December. Merrick will be 64 years old then, and I think the Senate Republicans would rather have a 64-year-old moderate and Merrick Garland is a moderate, then take their chances on a much younger liberal. Or, if the Democrats take the Senate in November, it changes hands on January 3rd, even though the presidency doesn't change until January 20th, and I think the Democratic Senate would confirm Merrick Garland. But if the Republicans win the White House, and if they keep the Senate, then Garland will never be on the Supreme Court. So the reality is that there's not only just eight justices this year, but it's likely that for most of next term as well, there'll only be eight justices on the court. Well, what are the most important cases still to be resolved this year? And I identified three. The first concerns abortion rights. And the case is Whole Women's Health Center versus Hellerstedt. By the way, since it's required for lawyers to get continual education credit, I prepared a handout. The handout lists what I regard as all the most important cases for this year, but as is custom for this talk, I'm gonna focus on three. Did you know that since 2010, state governments have adopted 290 separate laws restricting access to abortion? 
moral laws restricting access to abortion were adopted between 2010 and 2015 than in the prior decade combined by a large margin. The first of these laws has come to the Supreme Court in Whole Women's Health Center versus Hellerstein. It's a Texas statute. It has two provisions. One says that any doctor who performs an abortion must have admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles. Hospitals generally will not give these doctors admitting privileges. The other provision says that any facility where abortions are performed must have surgical quality facilities, even if no surgical abortions are performed there, even if it's only medically induced abortions like through RU486. Both sides of the litigation agree that these regulations would close 75 to 80% of the facilities in Texas where abortions are performed. A federal district court issued a preliminary injunction against this. The district court said that there's no evidence that these regulations will do anything to protect women's health. The federal judge said, if a woman is having complications at an abortion facility, she'll be taken to the emergency room where the doctor there will provide treatment. The judge said there's no need for surgical quality facilities if there's no surgical procedures being done. He said the Texas law was adopted solely with the purpose of obstructing access to abortion for women. The United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit reversed. The Fifth Circuit said it's for the legislature to decide what's best for the health of women. Courts shouldn't second guess the legislature. The Supreme Court granted review. Here's my sense of the current court. I think there's clearly three justices who are going to vote to uphold the Texas statute. Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas and Alito. I think there are also votes to overrule Roe versus Wade, should there ever be five votes for that on the court. On the other hand, I think there's four votes to strike down the Texas law. Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Sonner, and Kagan. That leaves Anthony Kennedy. I'm going to say that a lot this afternoon. Justice Kennedy was the fifth vote to reaffirm Roe versus Wade in 1992 in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. But since then, and it's now 24 years, in every abortion case, Justice Kennedy has voted to uphold the restriction on abortion. The case will come down between now and the end of June. The second area I was going to talk about concerns affirmative action. The case here is Fisher versus University of Texas. And the safe prediction is this will not be a 4-4 tie. Why is that such a safe prediction? Because only seven of the justices are participating in the case. Justice Kagan is disqualified from participating because she had been the Solicitor General of the United States while the case was handled in her office. The Solicitor General is the lawyer in the Department of Justice who represents the United States government before the Supreme Court. So with seven justices participating, what's likely to happen? Well, let me tell you a little bit about the case. In 2003, in Grutter versus Bollinger, the Supreme Court held that colleges and universities have a compelling interest in having a diverse student body. The Supreme Court said colleges and universities can look at race as one factor among many in their admissions decisions to enhance diversity to benefit minorities. There can't be a quota, there can't be a set-aside of slots for minority students. Just one of many factors can be a consideration of diversity. 
In 2004, the regents at the University of Texas saw that their undergraduate student population was less racially diverse than it had been, even as recently as 1996. There were fewer African-American students at the University of Texas in 2004 than eight years earlier. So the regents adopted a new admissions plan. They said they would take about 75% of each entering class by accepting the top 10% from every high school in the state. Texas is sufficiently racially diverse, that would produce some degree of diversity. But it still wouldn't get the University of Texas back to its pre-1996 levels of diversity. So the region said for the other 25% of the class, there'd be an individual review of every application. For every application, an admissions score was calculated. The score is the sum of two numbers. One is called the Academic Achievement Index. It's students' grades and test scores. The other is called the Personal Achievement Index. This number was arrived at by grading two essays required in the application for admission and looking at six factors. One of the six factors is what the student would contribute to diversity. The regents, the University of Texas, thought they were doing exactly what the Supreme Court prescribed, looking at race as one of many factors in admissions decisions. Abigail Fisher, a white woman, applied for the University of Texas in 2008. She was denied admission. She enrolled in Louisiana State University, from which she graduated in 2012. When she was denied admission to the University of Texas, she sued, arguing that its consideration of race violated equal protection. The federal district court ruled against her based on Grutter versus Bollinger. The United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit ruled against her based on Grutter versus Bollinger. The Supreme Court granted review. It heard oral arguments in October 2012. On June 24, 2013, the Supreme Court reversed the lower courts. Justice Kennedy wrote for the court. He said, it's not enough that a college or university has a compelling interest in a diverse student body. He said, the college or university must also show there is no other way to achieve diversity except affirmative action. The college or university has to prove there's no race-neutral way to achieve a diverse student body. The case was sent back to the Federal Court of Appeals. In the summer of 2014, the Federal Court of Appeals again ruled in favor of the University of Texas. It said that Texas had shown there was no other way to achieve racial diversity except through affirmative action. The Supreme Court granted review. So how do the seven justices who are participating line up? I think there's three justices who are going to vote in favor of Abigail Fisher, Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Thomas and Alito. In 2007, in a case called Parents Involved in Community Schools, where Seattle School is number one, John Roberts wrote an opinion saying that the Constitution requires that the government always be colorblind and that diversity is not a compelling government interest. That opinion was joined by Justices Scalia, Thomas, and Alito. There's three justices who are clearly going to vote in favor of the University of Texas, Justice Ginsburg, Breyer, and Sotomayor. That leaves Anthony Kennedy. He did not join Chief Justice Roberts' opinion saying that the Constitution requires that the government always be colorblind. But since coming on the Supreme Court in February 1988, 
Anthony Kennedy has never voted to uphold any affirmative action plan, not in education, not in employment, not in contracting. If Justice Kennedy joins the three conservatives to create the majority, I think those four justices will face a very hard question. How far do they want to go in limiting affirmative action, knowing that the decision could easily be overruled in a year or two, when Justice Kagan can participate in the case, where a fifth justice for the Democratic majority is there, perhaps Mark Garland or someone else? The third and final area that I was going to talk about concerns immigration. The case is called United States versus Texas. I confess, I just like the name of that case. <laughs> In November of 2014, President Obama announced a policy. It's called Deferred Action for Parents of Americans. It's often referred to as DAPA. It applies to individuals who have been in the United States unlawfully since at least 2010. It applies if they don't have a criminal conviction. And it says they will not face deportation for three years if they have a child who's an American citizen or a child who's a lawful resident alien. It doesn't grant them citizenship. It doesn't grant them legal status. It just defers the possibility of deportation. President Obama said there are about 11 million undocumented individuals in the United States. The most that have been deported in any year are 450,000. So let's use deportation proceedings against those who pose danger not to break up families. Texas and 25 other states filed a lawsuit in federal district court. The federal district court ruled in favor of the states and against the Obama administration. The federal district court judge said the Obama administration violated a federal law, the Federal Administrative Procedures Act, by not publishing this, giving notice of the proposed rule, and requesting comment, as is required. The federal judge issued a nationwide preliminary injunction, keeping the Obama executive action from going into effect, not just in that area of Texas, but anywhere in the country. In November 2015, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, in a two-to-one decision, affirmed the district court, keeping in place the nationwide preliminary injunction. The Supreme Court granted expedited review. There's many issues before the Supreme Court. Does Texas, do the other states, have standing to sue? In order for anyone to sue in federal court, including a state government, they have to suffer an injury. But what's the injury to Texas and the other states? Well, the federal district court said, when these individuals get deferred deportation status, they're eligible for driver's licenses in Texas, and Texas has to absorb costs in processing their driver's license applications. But there's nothing in the Obama executive action, there's nothing in federal law that requires that Texas give them licenses. This is a self-inflicted injury. Is that enough for standing? Did the Obama administration violate the Administrative Procedures Act by not going through formal notice and comment rulemaking? And the Supreme Court justices added on their own a fascinating question. Did the president violate Article II of the Constitution and the duty to take care of the laws of the United States are faithfully executed? No president, no attorney general, at the state level, no governor, no attorney general, enforces every federal law. 
Possessing the tiniest amount of marijuana is a federal crime. It violates the Federal Controlled Substance Act. But the federal government doesn't prosecute it. Going one mile over the speed limit is illegal. But thankfully, police don't ticket that. On the other hand, what if the next president says, I don't like high taxes on the rich. I'm going to direct the IRS not to enforce taxes above a certain level. Could the president do that? Where is the line to be drawn between prosecutorial discretion and a constitutional violation? All of that is now before the Supreme Court. It'll come down by the end of June. As we look beyond this year and next year in the Supreme Court, I think it is quite likely that whoever is elected president in November will get to pick three and maybe four Supreme Court justices. Did you know that since 1960, 79 years old is the average age which a Supreme Court justice has left the bench? By coincidence, Antonin Scalia was 79 when he passed away on February 13th. In 2017, the year the next president is inaugurated, there will be three justices on the bench 79 or older. Ruth Bader Ginsburg turned 84 on March 16th of this year. Anthony Kennedy turns 80 this summer. Stephen Breyer turns 78 later this year. And there's a real prospect that Justice Scalia's seat will not have been filled. That therefore means that whoever we elect is likely to pick three or four Supreme Court justices. Replacing three or four Supreme Court justices literally could change the outcome in every area of constitutional law. This will affect all of us, often in the most important, the most intimate aspects of our lives. So whether you identify as a Democrat or Republican, a conservative or a liberal, I think the most important issue for the November 2016 presidential election is who's going to fill these seats on the United States Supreme Court. So with that, let me pause and take questions about the cases I talked about, or I'm glad to talk about any of the other questions on the handout as well. Thank you. There is a microphone coming, but since you're in the first row, I'll hand you the microphone so everybody can hear your question. In your book, you discuss ways that the Supreme Court might be changed. What's your favorite? That's my favorite. Um, I'm going to give two. Um, one is I'd like to see term limits for Supreme Court justices. I'd like to see 18. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'd like to see 18-year non-renewable terms. Simple explanation of this. Thankfully, life expectancy is a lot longer today than it was in 1787. Clarence Thomas was 43 years old when he was confirmed for a seat in the Supreme Court in 1991. If he remains on the court till he's 90 years old, the age at which Justice Stevens retired, he will be a Supreme Court justice for 47 years. So this doesn't sound ideological. Elena Kagan and John Roberts reached 50 when they were confirmed for the Supreme Court. They stay there till they're 90, that's 40 years. That's too much power exercised by a single person for too long a period of time. 
Also, too much depends on the accident of history. Richard Nixon had four seats to fill in the Supreme Court in his first two years as president. Jimmy Carter had no seats to fill in his four years as president. 18-year non-renewable terms would mean that every president has the same ability to influence the court of vacancy every two years. And I don't think this is liberal or conservative. Texas Governor Rick Perry, obviously a conservative, advocated this in the 2012 presidential elections. The other reform I would like to see is much easier to bring about, cameras in the United States Supreme Court. We all should be able to watch our government at work. There are 350 seats in the Supreme Court's courtroom. That means only 350 seats can watch when the Supreme Court justices hear arguments or hand down decisions. As was mentioned, I've argued several times in the Supreme Court. I can tell you the presence of cameras would make no difference for the justice of the advocates. Audio tapes come out sometimes the same day as the oral argument. What's the difference between the audio tapes coming out at noon and it being able to be heard live at 10 a.m.? So I'd like to see cameras in the Supreme Court for all of its proceedings. Other questions? Please. Um, I'll repeat the question. Let's do it that way rather than you having to come to the microphone. Okay. Yeah, has Justice Thomas ever voted a different way from Justice Scalia? The answer to that is yes. Um, there are many instances where, um, you know, the reality is Justice Thomas is a good deal more radical than Justice Scalia. Um, I'll give you some examples. Justice Thomas believes that the part of the First Amendment, that there can be no law respecting established religion, doesn't apply to state and local governments at all. So for Justice Thomas, if a state wanted to declare an official state religion, if a state wanted to compel people to pray in a certain way, there'd be no constitutional limit. He's the only justice, thankfully, who takes that position. Justice Scalia doesn't take that position. Or I'll give you another example. Um, There's a case in 2005 called Gonzalez versus Reich. It involved whether federal law could be used to keep a woman from cultivating and possessing marijuana for her own personal use. And the Supreme Court there upheld that federal law as being within the scope of Congress's power. Justice Scalia was in the majority, Justice Thomas dissented. And I could give you many examples of that. The consistent theme is, as conservative as Justice Scalia has been, Justice Thomas is further to the right on a number of issues. Please, and then I'll go to the back next. Goes without a conservative just. Oh, uh, where do you think Fourth Amendment jurisprudence goes without a conservative justice who's who tends to align with liberals on it? The question is, where does Fourth Amendment jurisprudence go without a conservative justice who sometimes aligns with liberals? It's a complicated question, so let me try to unpack it. Um, the Fourth Amendment says that generally the police cannot search or arrest unless they've got a warrant based on probable cause. And with regard to Justice Scalia, there's some areas where he tended to decide more with the liberals and some areas where he tended to decide more with the conservatives. Justice Scalia tended to be with the liberals in some of the cases involving privacy. I'll give an example. There was a Supreme Court case um, just three years ago called Maryland versus King. 
It involved if a person was arrested, could the police take DNA to see if the individual's DNA matched some other unsolved crime in the police database. And the Supreme Court five to four said that that was permissible, but Justice Scalia was in dissent saying it violates privacy. Or another example, um, the Supreme Court handed down a case just a couple of years ago, a very important case, California versus Riley, about if a police arrest an individual, can the police look at the content of the cell phones? And Justice Scalia was part of the majority saying, no, the police can't look at the content of the cell phone unless they've got a warrant or it's an emergency. So Justice Scalia, and I'll give you other examples, has been with the liberals in some of the privacy Fourth Amendment cases. But where Justice Scalia is with the conservatives is he doesn't believe in what's called the exclusionary rule. The exclusionary rule is the principle that if the police violate the Fourth Amendment, anything they gain from the search isn't admissible as evidence. And Justice Scalia was a foremost advocate for eliminating the exclusionary rule. And without him there, I don't think there's five votes to further narrow the exclusionary rule. So it's a complicated answer in terms of the Fourth Amendment, because I think his jurisprudence of the Fourth Amendment was complicated. There's a question far in the back. Please speak loudly so we can hear you. Uh, you started off by talking about some of the areas in which Justice Scalia was successful in advocating and some of which in which he wasn't. Um, one in which he's claimed he was successful is in getting the court to adopt statutory textualism. But recently, Stevens characterized that. I think he said that fight was really Nino against the world. So I was wondering whether you thought Scalia you know, was somewhat successful in that respect or whether, as Justice Stevens says, he wasn't. It's a great question. Justice Scalia's view was that a statute should be read based just on its plain language, and that the purpose of the legislature that adopted it is relevant, and especially the legislative history is relevant. He said it often, he said it loudly, but I don't think he succeeded in persuading a majority of the court. In the example of this, a case from last June 25th called King versus Burwell, and it's an enormously important one that affects all of us, it involves the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act. As you know, this was the law that tried to make sure that virtually all Americans had health care coverage. For the poorest among us, it says that every state had to include within its Medicaid coverage those within 133% of the federal poverty level. For those just above this income level, but still of lower and lower middle income, health insurance was made affordable through tax credits. It said that if a person purchased health insurance from a state-established healthcare exchange, they'd get a tax credit to pay for it from the federal government. The law called on every state to create a state exchange, but Congress can't force the states to adopt laws, so it said if a state doesn't create an exchange, the federal government will create such an exchange. To this point, only 16 states have established exchanges, and the other 34 states, it's the federally created exchange. So the challengers came to the court and said, look at the plain language of the statute. It says you get tax credits if you purchase insurance from a state-established exchange. You don't get it if you purchase insurance from the federally created exchange. All sides of the litigation agree that had the challengers won, it would collapse these healthcare exchanges, likely in all 50 states. The Supreme Court, in a six to three decision, ruled in favor of the United States. 
Chief Justice Roberts wrote for the court, joined by Justices Kennedy, Ginsburg, Breyerson, and Kagan. Justice Scalia wrote an angry dissent, joined by Justice Thomas and Alito. Chief Justice Roberts says, we interpret statutes to fulfill the legislative purpose. Congress's purpose clearly was to make sure that all who could not afford it would get these tax credits. Congress didn't want let states, by not creating exchanges, to collapse all of them all over the country. Justice Scalia, as I said, wrote a vehement dissent, saying, look at the plain language of the statute. But the majority rejected that. So that, I think, is a recent example where Justice Scalia's approach to statute interpretation didn't get a majority. One more question, please. We have to give this kind man his exercise. There's been debates going on between the, uh, assessing the balance of power between the legislature, the executive, and the judiciary. Some people say the executive is getting a little too powerful with executive orders, and this goes on back and forth. Do you see any changes at all in uh, the general concept of balance of power? Has it shifted in any direction? What's your opinion? The Constitution was written to be a struggle among the legislature, Congress, the executive, the president, and the judiciary. That's how we have checks and balances. They're supposed to fight among themselves. I think the powers of the branches wax and wane over time. There was a wonderful book written in the 1970s by Harvard professor Arthur Schlesinger called The Imperial Presidency but the tremendous increase in presidential power. I think then we went through a time of perhaps a lessening of presidential power, and I think there's been some of an increase in presidential power. I think Congress, because of the political divide, has been much less powerful, much less effective in recent years. Think of how little Congress has done in recent years. Um, on the other hand, I think that the court has been particularly powerful in recent years in affecting all of us. Think of the marriage equality decisions or its ruling with regard to the Affordable Care Act. But I don't think that the, as you phrase it, the balance of power among these branches is or ever has been static. I think it will change as the personnel on these branches of government change and as the issues facing society change. When the country is in war, when the country is facing something like a depression, executive power grows. Because we need a strong executive in a time of war and a, a time of a depression. Um, on the other hand, I think in times of relative prosperity, when there's a greater satisfaction with government, I think then we tend to give more power to the legislature. But that's going to change over time. Thank you for coming and thank you for having me. <laughs>